0: I want to invite you now, if you will, to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 4. Romans 4. And I'll begin the message this morning, Father Abraham, his faith and ours, by saying that within the realm of human relationships, did you realize that the Bible makes a distinction between comparison and imitation? It's true. Think about it for a moment. Comparison, not always, but often involves measuring yourself against another human being instead of measuring yourself against God's standards. You can easily fall into the trap of assuming you are doing well when you compare yourself with others who don't appear to be doing as well as yourself. But this is a false measurement, isn't it? For instance the apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10:12 about his own apostolic ministry, not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves. But when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. He also says in verse 18 of that same chapter For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. We should all be continually seeking the Lord's measurement and His commendation of our character and our actions, not comparing ourselves to others and their relationship to Christ. We should only be comparing ourselves by evaluating yourself, myself, against the Lord's own standard of measurement His word. On the other hand, we are actually told in Scripture to be involved in imitation. Not comparison, but imitation. Even commanded to imitate other believers. It's an interesting thing, isn't it? Not to be involved in comparison, but to be very involved in imitation. Hebrews 13:7 says, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. We're to imitate the faith of others, particularly our leaders. In other texts, for example, Paul challenges his disciples to follow him as he follows Christ. It's a command to see, here's the important point, to see others through them in following Christ. You see, you're not just looking at them, you're really in essence not doing that, you're looking through them to Christ. You're seeing how they model Christ and you want to follow Christ through looking at them. That's the difference, I say, between comparison and imitation, You see the difference between the two? We can follow or imitate one another and our respective faith as they follow the Lord and we can follow by looking through them to Christ because in doing so you are ultimately following only the Lord Himself as others are equally following Him. It is then very much a vertical relationship with horizontal implications. But with the idea of comparison It virtually excludes the vertical dimension, or at least greatly obscures it, focusing instead on the horizontal dimension, forcing you to measure yourself by others and not Christ's approval. Imitation gives you a human look at following Christ because you can look to or through someone else as they are following the Master. Comparison leads you to stay on that horizontal plane only focusing on how you are being perceived or how others are perceiving you looking for cues from them and not ultimately the Lord Himself listen to this list that I that I thought of just three or five I thought about the differences between comparison and imitation which is certainly of course not exhaustive but representative comparison invites boasting about yourself Imitation invites the need for humility. Comparison results in frustration about yourself or others. Imitation can allow for the appreciation of others. Comparison can result in criticizing others. Imitation downplays criticizing others. Comparison potentially suggests you're the standard. Imitation implies the standard lies somewhere else. Comparison belies a subtle pride. Imitation recognizes your limitations. Now you might be asking the question, why this morning am I introducing Romans 4 verses 19 to 25 in this way? Well, because if we're not careful, we can so easily fall into the comparison trap when looking even at someone like Abraham. Instead of the real point of Paul's words here, which is this. Imitate Abraham's strong trust in the promises of God by believing in the fulfillment of those promises, which is Jesus Christ. Imitate Abraham's strong trust in the promises of God by believing in the fulfillment of those promises, which is Jesus Christ. If you compare your faith to Abraham's, which... Ultimately, it doesn't matter to me if you use the word compare, as long as you use the word imitate as your meaning. If you compare your faith to Abraham's, you're going to become very frustrated by your own meager confidence in God. However, if you attempt to imitate Abraham's faith, it will motivate you to rely on the Lord as he did. Don't forget that truth of Hebrews 13:7. remember your leaders, those who spoke to you, to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life. Imitate their faith. That could be overlaid, couldn't it, on Abraham. Imitate his faith. Today's message then is all about considering Abraham's way of life and imitating his faith. The Lord isn't asking you to compare your faith to his. He's commanding you to imitate Abraham's faith. Consider Abraham's way of life, which was the way of faith, and imitate that way. You follow along as I read Romans 4, verses 19 to 25, and see if we can pick up on this. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, who believe in Him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Now, this portion of scripture, I believe, could be divided into two obvious parts. Number one, we can see in verses 19 to 22, Paul speaking of Abraham's justification. Or his right standing with God. And secondly, from verses 23 to 25, we see Paul speaking of the Roman believers and therefore of ourselves as well. Our justification with God. Very, very simply stated. Not hard to understand at all. Two outline points. Abraham's justification with God and our justification with God. Let's look at the first one, Abraham's justification with God. As we look at Abraham's justification, I want you to notice five separate statements which Paul gives us, or maybe more specifically, more precisely, four statements with a concluding or resultant statement about his justification. Notice, number one, he did not weaken in faith, that's the first part of verse 19, Number two, no distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, first part of verse 20. Number three, he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, that's the latter part of verse 20. Number four, he was fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised, that's verse 21. And number five, a summary statement from Paul there in verse 22 which says that that is why or this is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Five things that Paul wants us to know in these concluding remarks about Abraham's faith. Notice verse 19. He did not weaken in faith. See the first way to imitate, not compare, If you're gonna compare yourself with the strong faith of Abraham, you're gonna be pretty frustrated pretty quickly. But if you were to imitate Abraham's faith It would be to see that he did not, Paul says, weaken in faith, which, by the way, is probably a play on words. Why? He didn't weaken in faith even though his physical body was weak. You say, how's that a play on words? Well, he did not have a dead faith. His faith was not weakening to the point of death. He he did not have a dead faith when he considered his own dead body. That might be the idea there. Play on words. What a statement about someone's faith. Even though what you see on the outside, your physical life, your physical body, uh, your circumstances, even when you see those things as old, as fading away, when you see it weakened, when you see your own body weakened, your faith is not weakened. Isn't that wonderful? Here's a man who obviously, a hundred years old, just about, looked at his own life, looked at his own body, looked at his own circumstances, and wondered, what is my life going to turn out to be? What about my desires? What about my dreams? What about my prayers? For some of you who are aged, or beset with disease, or otherwise pelted by life's storms, is your faith as Weak as your body? Is your faith as weak as your circumstances? When you look at things around you with your eyes, your physical eyes, what do you see? Well, you see weakness. You see degeneration. You don't see evolution, you see devolution. You see see things breaking up. You see your body is not responding as it once did. You see your mind starting to go. You can't remember things as you used to. Your short-term memory, your long-term memory, it begins to fade. Your body, your mind, our world, it all begins to weaken. But Paul says about Abraham, his faith did not weaken. It's put in this negative vein. Even though his body was as good as dead, he did not weaken himself. Abraham's faith was vibrant. It was alive. Notice what Paul says here in verse 19. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old. What an incredible faith to imitate. Even though his body was old, his faith was vibrant, alive, it didn't matter what condition his physical life was in, he knew that God could and would do whatever it took to fulfill his plan for Abraham's life. Look back up at verse 16. That is why Paul says it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on what? Grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, that's the Jew, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, that's the Gentile, either believing Jews or believing Gentiles, those who who share the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. He's so clearly saying there in verse 16 and following that faith doesn't work for the promise to be fulfilled. Faith doesn't work. The promised rests on what? On grace. On God's grace. You depend. You trust. You have faith. You rest in the promises of God. Not based on your work, but on divine grace. That's what Abraham did. God had promised to Abraham that He would make of him a father of many nations. Look at verse 17. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed. God made a promise. And Abraham believed God in the very presence of God. It says, does Paul, in verse 17, who gives life to the dead... And calls into existence the things that do not exist. Abraham believed that. Abram, who was to be Abraham, Abraham, he trusted God. He believed what God was saying. God gave him a promise, and Abraham said, I believe in that promise, even though I don't see it in existence. Even though I look at my body, it's dead. It's as good as dead. I cannot procreate any longer but God you say that I can and therefore I will because your promise is that I will make of you a father of many nations notice what it says at the end of verse 17 there so shall your offspring be Uh, excuse me verse 18 so shall your offspring be Abraham believed that God was going to give him a life what life was that Isaac he was going to give him a life, a life out of his own human body. He trusted that God was going to call into existence the things that presently do not exist. He did not have the capacity. God says, You will. Abraham trusted and waited on that promise. Let me ask you can you imitate Abraham's faith in this way? It's a trust. It's a dependence. It's a reliance. Do you believe that God brings into existence the things that presently do not exist? You say, of course, He's God. Is that the way you live your life? Each day? Do you live the theory of trust? Do you live it out practically? Do you ask God for things in which you can believe and then live out every day of your life in light of that promise, in light of that request, in light of that desire? It first occurs when God grants you a faith for which you then rely on Him for your eternal life. And then it is a faith which continues to believe a God who can do that. You believe and you keep on believing. That's the Christian life. You're not weakened in faith, even in the midst of a weakened body. As you grow older and experience bodily pains and heartaches and trials and temptations and tribulations, your faith doesn't weaken, it what? It matures. It matures. Are you imitating Abraham in this way? It wasn't even simply a weakened faith that was at issue that Paul says Abraham did not have. But he also, notice, did not weaken even when looking at the circumstances surrounding the barrenness of Sarah's womb. Look at the latter part of verse 19. He didn't weaken in his own body when he considered it, which was as good as dead, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. It wasn't just that he looked at himself, he looked at his wife. And he said, as beautiful as she is, for she as Scripture says, was surely beautiful, she was past the point of childbearing. The promised seed, Paul says, was not only going to come through Abraham's body, but also Sarah's womb, her body. She was somewhere around 90, Scripture says, and to think she was going to bear a child on a human level, this would have been preposterous. But nothing is impossible with God. Absolutely nothing. And of course you might even ask the question, why would God want to do that with this man and this woman? Well, frankly, there wasn't anything particularly special about Abram and Sarai. Nothing. Nothing at all. What was God doing? What was His plan? Think about it. He wanted to pick two people, any two people, His design was to choose those two people because one was a hundred and one was ninety so that in the end, when God's plan was effectuated, who would be glorified? Who would be looked to? Who would be said to have been the only one who could do it? God. God Himself. So that there would be absolutely no question. God is in charge here. God is doing this. God is unfolding His plan. I can't conceive a child. I'm 100. My wife can't have a child in her womb. She's 90. Only God could do this. That's right. Look at verse 20. No distrust made Him waver. Oh, He didn't weaken? Nor did He waver. And what was the object of of this non-wavering faith? Notice what it says. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God. You see, it wasn't that his faith was so indestructible. We know that by the record of Genesis 12 through 24. We know his faith was not perfect. We know that there were destructible aspects to his faith. Most certainly, he's a human being. He was not sinless. What was he doing? It it, it wasn't that his faith was in his faith. His faith was in the God who made those promises. He trusted in his God, the promises of that God. And likewise, you and I, we don't have confidence in our faith because that confidence could be shattered in a moment, right? It's not faith in someone else. Our confidence in them could be shattered in a moment. People will let us down. We will let ourselves down. It is not our confidence in ourselves. No, our confidence, like Abraham's, is outside ourselves. And it is in God's word of promise. Thank you, Lord, for those prepositions. In God's promise. Concerning the promise of God. Paul says, Abraham, according to verse 18, hoped against hope. In hope against hope what a great trust not that he was displaying but in God whose hope it is his body was as good as dead Sarah's womb was as good as dead by the way the word for dead there a couple of descriptions good as dead the idea of barrenness description is from our word ultimately nekros. In the Greek text, nekros. Form of the word nekros, which means dead. Necrosis. You know what that is? It's the death of bodily tissue. That's the very word that's used here. It's the idea that my my bodily tissues have died. I, I can't procreate. Sarah does not have the ability to bear a child. They were both as... All of us will have in this life experiencing the slow death of our bodily tissue. They had long passed the point of being able to see another life come from their own bodies. Abraham was clearly, 100 years old, past the point of procreation. But it is true, of course, that some have suggested that this was indeed not the case. Why? Because in Genesis chapter 25, verses 1 and 2, the Bible indicates that Abraham went on to bear six More sons to another wife, Keturah. You've read that. But even here, God was simply showing that life can still come out of deadness. And not simply once in Abraham's life, but several more times. He was continually trusting God. His dead body was given new life by God even long after the procreation of Isaac. God gave him life. He gave him bodily life. So that he could conceive. There is, of course, a certain time in every man's life when he can't produce life-creating fluid. And there comes a time when a woman can't become pregnant. It's a fact of our sin-cursed world. But God wanted the world to know that Abram's ability to produce more children, even those others beyond Isaac, and Sarah's ability to have Isaac, was resting not on their works, but resting solely on grace. Grace. The grace of God is the issue in this text. And Abraham believed God by grace through faith. There was no distrust, Paul says, that made him waver. And I ask you, does distrust of God, in God, for God, make you waver? Are you a waverer? Do you believe the promises of the Word of God? Abraham emphatically did not waver, and that's why he's the father of us all. Now, some of you might be tempted to say at this point, but you're making it sound like Abraham's faith was perfect. No, I've already said his faith wasn't perfect. His faith was far less than perfect. He stumbled in many ways. He made both progressions and digressions in his faith. That's not even what Paul nor the Bible as a whole wants to teach us here. As I said, you look at the record of Genesis chapter 12 through chapter 24 and the point of the narrative isn't designed to show Abraham's perfect faith, far from it. It's showing us a person that we can relate to. We relate to him when he was strongly trusting in God and we relate to him when his faith was not as strong as it otherwise could be, right? He's real to us. I'm not purporting that... Abraham is such a model that it appears as though I'm saying, or the Bible is saying he had a perfect faith. Not at all. What the Bible wants us to see here in Romans 4 is that he had a life pattern of faith. He had a life direction of faith. He wanted to trust God, and he did much of the time. There were also times when his faith was not as strong as it should be, and that makes him all the more real to us. Makes him all the more a person we can relate to. Look at the latter part of verse 20. I think this is why Paul says what he does here in the latter part of verse 20. He grew strong in his faith. He grew strong in his faith. You see, that that gives us a progression. That tells us something that he was all about doing. He was growing Strong in his faith. It's looking at it historically, of course. Of course, he grew strong in his his faith. But obviously, that's pointing to the idea that his faith grew continually. Progressively. But I want you to notice what Paul says. He grew strong in his faith. How? As he gave glory to God. Oh, that's a tremendous, tremendous insight. I could say it this way. Paul is emphasizing once again the direction or the focus of his faith. It was not inward that he was trusting. It wasn't faith in his faith. It wasn't something that was growing on the inside as it was looking inward or even as the comparison trap is, he's looking at other people around him and saying, how is my faith growing when I look around me to other people? Well, you could whitewash the deal and make yourself look pretty good at times, can't you? Well, I know so and so... And boy, they're just tubing it spiritually. And I'm doing pretty well in comparison. Is that what Abraham did? No. Here's how he grew proportionately in his faith. As he gave glory to God. He trusted God to keep his word of promise. And when he did, it was easy to glorify God, not himself. It was easy not to look to others. His focus was not inward, it was upward. Comparison causes me to look around at others in order to evaluate myself against others. While imitation motivates me to see through someone like Abraham and his faith in God. Oh, how God wants us to imitate this kind of faith. That's how I can appreciate Abraham's faith without idolizing him. Without putting him up as some kind of uh, supposed deity. I can appreciate someone else's faith. I can look at the Apostle Paul and say, boy, what great faith he had and what great statement he gave when he said, follow me as I follow Christ. I can appreciate that, but I don't have to do like the Corinthians were doing and saying, I'm of Paul. I don't have to do that. I don't have to idolize Paul. You don't have to name a city in Minnesota after him. You don't have to do anything like that. What you can do is say, I love the God whom Paul trusted. I love the God whom Abraham trusted. That's how I can rejoice with Paul or Abraham. That's even how Paul could call Abraham the father of us all. The father of the faith. The progenitor, as it were. Not just because he bore with Sarah Isaac, but also because of his faith. Maybe even more importantly, God could have chosen any human being to do that. It's not Abraham that's the issue. It's God. Listen to this, I am most like Abraham, not when I compare my faith to his, but when I imitate his glorifying of God through faith. Oh, that's so important, so important. I am most like Abraham, not when I compare my faith to his, but when I imitate his glorifying of God through faith. Comparison looks at Abraham's faith. Imitation looks through his strong faith to God and his glory. That's a key. Are you growing in your faith? Can you look back on your Christian experience and see the genuine evidences of growth in grace by faith? Can you say with Paul about Abraham concerning you, you, Lance grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God? See, is that a testimony about your life? Is that what people can say about you? When they look at your faith, when you see your faith from where you knew where you were spiritually from days gone by, can you see growth and grace, progress or digression? You see, the mechanism of Abraham's growing strength in faith was, directionally, was directly proportional to his giving glory to God. I mean, if someone were to ask me the question, how can I grow in my faith? Learn how to progressively glorify God. That's the answer. That's what he says. Notice the, the mechanism, the, the, the instrumental means. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to To God, you progressively give glory to God, what's going to happen to your faith? It's going to grow. It's going to grow strong. It's going to become alive, vibrant, dynamic, ever-growing, progressing. Will there be hiccups? Yes. Burps? Most certainly. Will you stumble and fall? Absolutely. Will it be difficult at times? Yes. Will your faith be destroyed? No. Is it going to become a weakened, dead faith? No. No. Not for a true believer. Will there be times of doubt? Yes. Will you often look at what appears to be the progression of faith in your life and say, it's not what I want. It's not as much as I want. Yes. All of that's true. And it may be at times three steps forward, two steps back. But not ultimately. You're going to move ahead inexorably until your faith becomes perfected in your glorified state. When you can glorify God perfectly. Here's another component. Look at verse 21. He was fully convinced. Oh, Paul gives us a fourth component to study with regard to Abraham's faith. He was fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. You might be saying at this point, look, I have it. I have the point. Abraham trusted God. How many different ways does Paul need to say it? Well, apparently, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, as many times as we need to be taught. As many different ways. He didn't weaken in his faith. He didn't waver in his faith. He grew strong in his faith. That's two negatives, and now a positive, and now another positive. Fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Of what was Abraham fully convinced? The promises of God. What was he fully convinced about? Promises of God. Was he fully convinced of his circumstances? No. What, what, what might he have said about his circumstances? There's no hope. In hope against hope. I'm a hundred years old. Can't happen. There might even be a woman in our congregation who's desperately wanting to conceive. Doesn't think it's possible. It hasn't happened. We don't know God's plan. It may be that his plan is for you that this not occur. But it may also be because God is testing your faith. God is asking you to believe in ways that you never thought you could before. It's happened. I've talked to many different people, counseled couples who have not been able to conceive. And then they even went ultimately through the process of adoption. And then what happened? Conception. It's happened. God is in charge of this. He opens and closes the womb. He makes men who can respond with procreation. He makes all of that. He does that. You see why Abraham's faith was affirmed by God? He had his faith squarely placed in God. In God, not himself, not his circumstances, in God who was able. Folks, that's an ability word. That's an ability word. Who is able? Me? No, God. God is able. He was fully convinced that God was able to do what He had promised. God is the only one who can fully and completely carry out His desires. Isn't that an amazing thing about the doctrine of God? God is the only one who can fully, completely carry out His desires. Never being tripped up. Never failing. That's why open theism is such a hideous doctrine that God even Himself doesn't know until we all know it together. It's ridiculous. God is able. He's the only one who can fully, perfectly, completely, without any misstep whatsoever, carry through on what He has promised. And that's where Abraham was banking his entire life and future. We ought to imitate that. We ought to imitate that. I should trust in a God like that, shouldn't I? Oh, I dare not trust in myself. I dare not trust in other human beings. That's why I'm better off not comparing myself to them. Because I'm going to fail in my comparison to them, or they'll inevitably fail in comparison to me. I must be fully convinced that God is able to do what He has promised. Now again, someone might object and say, doesn't Genesis 17:17 17, 17 say that Abraham said the following words to God just after he was told by him that he, he and Sarah would give a son? This is what he said. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Genesis 17, 17 Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? I mean, what is Paul devoting an entire chapter, Romans 4, to a guy who said that? Why is he extolling that? Well, he wasn't extolling that. Yes, Abram did say that. But once God went on to continue to speak of these things, Abraham trusted God's word Just like it says about his strong faith. It grew. It grew. Look, don't hold up Abraham to a sinless perfection. Only Christ has fulfilled that. He was fully convinced, Paul says, that God was going to do what he promised until the point where Paul and ourselves could look back on his life and say he was fully convinced that God is able. Fully convinced. That's the pattern of his life. That's the direction of his life. Don't hang him up for one statement. Don't crucify him for that which was not perfect faith. Fully convinced, by the way, from the Greek word plerao, means to be fully persuaded, full certainty. That's that's what the Bible says. That's, That's the Holy Spirit writing through Paul. That was his faith. He was fully certain, fully persuaded. And I ask you, are you fully persuaded that God can be trusted to do what He is able to do? Can you trust the Word of God? Will you believe in the promises of God? If you do, and if you can, by God's grace, you'll imitate Abraham's faith. Which means that your faith will result in what God says about Abraham's faith in verse 22. Look at it. That is why his faith, verse 22, was counted to him as righteousness. See, Paul sets all of that up, all of those four statements to say, and if this is true of Abraham and his life, not perfectly, but the direction of it, then that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. And Paul repeats what he said in verse 3, and he repeats what he said in verse 9 of this chapter, and he does it here, but here he does it for a different reason. Here, he uses this catchphrase, counted to him as righteousness, as a bridge Now he's moving away from Abraham and his faith, which is counted to him as righteousness. Now he's going to talk about us. Now he's going to talk about us. He's going to talk about the Roman believers and by secondary application ourselves as well. He's going to use it as a bridge to speak about the Romans' spiritual condition. You see, Paul's a gospel preacher. And he can't help but talk about Abraham and his faith and how it counted to him as righteousness. And now he says, but what about you? Just like... Four or five times this morning, I've said, but what about you? But what about your faith? You see, that's searing application. That is divine implications off this text. Notice, he moves as a bridge. He says, that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. And now our second outline point, but the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. Who's the ours? The Romans. The Romans. And ourselves. It will be counted to us, the Romans, and anyone, implication, who believe in Him, who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Oh, what a gospel word that is. Not only is Abraham's justification for his own sake... But it was also for the sake of the Roman believers too. And it is counted as righteousness for anyone, anyone who would but believe in Him who's Him, God, God the Father. By the way, this is one of the few places in the New Testament where we're called upon to put our faith in God the Father. That's how they did it in the Old Testament. You put your faith in God the Father because they didn't know of Christ. They knew Messiah was coming, but they didn't know it was Jesus. So they would say, put your faith in God. Put your faith in God. Put your faith in the Father. Here they say, put your faith, as does Paul and his associates, put your faith in Him, God the Father, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord. You See the link between the two? Him who raised Jesus. And who's authoring this text? The Holy Spirit. Trinity, right here. That's what we're to do. This is, this is the culminating sense of the chapter. This is the end. This is the application. This is what you must do. Everyone in this congregation must ask the question, Am I believing in Him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord? For when you do that, you understand that He was delivered up for our trespasses. Just like the song said that the choir sang, Forgiveness of sins, our mighty and awesome God, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Great word of the chapter, justification. Great word to end the chapter, justification. And I end by saying this. cannot be justified in any other way. Justification is told to us in Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 26. And this chapter illustrates it with Abraham who says, I believe God. Do you believe God? Do you believe that God raised Jesus Christ from the dead? Not just a mere fact, not just a theory, but that He raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses. If you don't believe that, then your sins Your trespasses have not been forgiven. And if you don't believe that God raised Him from the dead, you will not be justified. Declared not guilty. And not just the negative, not guilty, but the positive, clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It's not going to be true of you. And you will stand one day before God, and He will ascertain of your life what did you do with my son Jesus Christ whom I raised from the dead even the Lord of all the living and the dead who will judge those who are standing before me who was delivered up for our trespasses and he was raised for our justification what is your response? what is your response? you have time the time is now believe in Jesus Christ whom God the Father raised from the dead and who has forgiven us our trans, our trespasses as he gave glory to God let's pray father you are the great and awesome god You are the great and awesome God. You are the one to whom we look. You're the one who raised even Jesus our Lord from the dead. And by virtue of that deliverance, our trespasses are wiped away. And His resurrection affirms that justification has been made. He was justified. Not because of His sin, but because He was tasked, given the responsibility for the delivering up of our trespasses and for our justification. And He was raised to confirm it, to secure it. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Lord, we confess and we seek forgiveness and we repent and we ask that You would place onto our guilty account the Lord Jesus' life his burial, his resurrection, and his ascension. And may you be pleased, Father, to place it on our account and stamp that account forgiven. Trespasses done away. Justification declared. May it be true of everyone here. In His name, amen.